often referred to as devil birds and things like that. It's uh, <laughs> you have you not heard this? Oh my god! Uh, and it's, it's all it's all based around the amount of work that goes into hunting them. Hey everybody, Ethan here with Standing Stone, and we're going to talk a little bit today about ammunition, all right? First and foremost, if you've listened to our podcast in the past, we started off with a you ask, we answer, and we've made kind of an evolution to be able to include more things and incorporate a a little different venue, as well as um, allow Kat and I to split off and talk with the things that, you know, kind of drive us a little more or definitely more important to us to just offer more to you. Um, As we have done this, we've kind of been able to provide a a very interesting collection of new things. And today we're going to be talking specifically with Hunter about ammo. Um, This is something that's been a pretty big topic through the beginning part of this year. And Oh, I would say, I think we're going to get some answers here, but I also do believe that there are some things in and amongst that you guys already may be thinking or know or or have the right assumptions to. Now, if you are listening for the first time, definitely I want you guys to um, reach out on all of the platforms or if you're finding us here. We are on Instagram. We are on YouTube, and that's where we make a, a majority of our videos and different things like that for training as well as if you are looking for help specifically to training your dog, definitely reach out to us at patreon.com slash standing stone kennels. Now, the most important thing here today is Hunter. Hunter is um, an awesome guy, works with Kent, and I'm going to give him just a minute here to introduce himself. Yeah, so I run all of Kent's uh, social media, starting to get into more of the marketing side of things here. Uh, where I have a lot of caps, and I've gone on, gone into my what fourth, coming up on my fourth year here. So it's been a awesome, awesome gig with a tremendous amount of benefits. Really get to travel all over the place, explore, meet new people. It's been a lot of fun. So you said you working, you were working primarily in the the media department or marketing department with Kent. Yeah. So. Social media, handle all the social media, uh, print advertisements. Uh, it's turned into me wearing a bunch of different hats around around uh, the company as a whole, but it's been a blast traveling all over the country, meeting new people, getting to go to all these different shows and experience how different communities of people handle waterfowl hunting, upland hunting, dog training, how everything changes pretty much everywhere you go. It's a super cool and unique thing to get to do. Okay. So, um, background in media work or media relations, you go to school for this or I went to school for criminology. So it (laughs) it, uh, lined up pretty much at zero. Um, I get to use it. I get to use the crim degree a little bit, uh, reading people as a hobby. So being able to, use that and kind of see through people doing different things. Everybody and their brother wants to be a influencer these days. So kind of seeing people that actually enjoy doing it versus the guys that just want the free product to exploit a situation, I guess has been 
that's about the only time I get to use my degree these days. Sure, I understand completely. Now, um, like I said, you were a little quiet to hear me again. You said you've been with Kent for four years? Going into, I just finished up year three, going, I think I'm starting year four right now. It's been um, three years and a month, essentially. Three years and a month. I like it. Now, um, all of those things being said, it's this is the main question that I wanted to ask you, and I want to jump right into this right away. Um, where has the ammo gone? Okay. Where has the ammo gone? This is a question that a lot of people have been asking me specifically. And it's like, I don't have an answer. I don't know, but I'm going to see if we can get somebody that does. Yeah. So it, to answer the question, the ammo has gone everywhere. It has been a nonstop start to finish process with us. We never shut down, kept everything running through the whole time, shipping as much as we can as soon as we can. And it's just, it's been a never ending, constantly evolving process that just doesn't ever seem to get better. So hopefully within the next year or two, it starts to slow down a little bit, but the closer we get to that, the closer we get to the next election, which is always a great year to sell ammo. So that'll be a whole nother storm coming. So it's not, not over yet. So, I think that uh, on average, people have seen this. If you've been in the United States, you've seen the effects that COVID has had on supply and demand. And it's um, my question kind of, you said it's going everywhere, right? So has the actual production amount that you guys produce numbers wise, has that gone down or has it stayed the same or has it gone up? Um, More people are just buying ammo? It's gone up from pre-COVID. Uh, it, it's, I mean, every, you have the way that everything's going now, you still have guys that normally buy, walk into any store really, and normally buy two cases of ammo. They're going in and buying five to 10 cases of ammo. Sure. So the guy that normally goes in to buy a couple boxes goes to buy a case freaking out and he can't buy that one case of ammo. So then suddenly there's no ammo. I mean, it, it's really luck of the draw at this point. Uh, walking into a store and finding it on any given day. We have guys going all these shows. We have guys that say, oh, I have a ton of ammo at this store right here as a chain store. And then a guy 50 miles down the road, same chain store, never saw it, never. So it's really just, you almost have to walk in at the right time. Yeah. And that comes down to, uh, you know, basically, uh, memes are, are what uh, this day and age has kind of been able to deal with the, the problems of the world with. And um, mm-hmm. I think everybody firsthand dealt with the silliness that was the toilet paper shortage, right? Oh, and- it, it's the exact <laughs> same thing, it, but it's just never, I've used that analogy hundreds of times. And it's just the, the another super interesting thing is, especially on the social media side, looking at all the Facebook forums, all that stuff, you get guys that will take an inch and turn it into a mile with little bit of information that they get from some of these manufacturers. And then you get guys, I mean, we've had people call in to our direct line and ask how much Biden's paying us not to produce ammo. Like it is. That's a serious thing. A dead serious thing. It is the amount of stuff that people get off of Facebook, just social media in general, 
that they run with and they will get like that guy was legitimately angry and was like this is messed up trump would have never done that. like it was just something you would have never thought of and it couldn't be the exact opposite like we are trying it's it's ridiculous facebook is definitely the place that everybody should go for all of their news you know oh yeah, Every, yeah everything 100%. you see on the internet 100 percent true okay so I was talking with you at Pheasant Fest, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Pheasant Fest is a the national pheasants forever quail forever uh, forever excuse me banquet, and it moves around in the Midwest. But um, that was in was it was it held in March? I just March middle of March. Yeah, middle of March. Yeah. Okay, so we we got we bumped into you there. Now, is that the first time you guys have been to that show? Mm-hmm. That is. So we. There's a ton of different shows that, like this year, first time at NWTF, first time at Pheasant Fest, and then uh, we'll do the first time at Delta Waterfowl this year in July as well. So we'll be traveling quite a bit this year. Okay, so obviously these are the first time at some of these new shows that kind of pull into maybe a little different venue. There's some stuff that we should be talking about here shortly on why the change and what your you know what the plans are from uh from from ending up being at those shows but Mm -hmm. i do want to take just a half step back because while we were there um and this kind of goes into where has the ammo gone aspect of things you brought up quite a few things that i never even thought about now um you talked about yes maybe there's there was a different run of things that were shortages right so there were struggle to get primers at one point in time There were struggles to get shot cups, just all of the supplies. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have to list out all the supplies in it, but it would be, those were the specific things coming and going. And though it wasn't necessarily a shortage of ammo per se, because you guys are selling as much, if not more than what you were before, it was more Mm -hmm. of just a lack of able to ability to keep up with the demand because the demand grew due to this hoarding mentality almost that, that kind mm-hmm. of goes and it, it grows, you know, it's a weird thing. I, and I am no less guilty than anyone else in the, in the respect and almost more from a um, true necessity from a business standpoint. I mean, we train bird dogs and yeah. without ammunition, I cannot train bird dogs and that's how we're making a living. You know, it's a livelihood thing at this point. It's not, I want to have 10 cases of ammo stacked on the shelf so that I can look at it. Um, Mm -hmm. I need to be able to have ammo to be able to train bird dogs. Now, um, everybody has goals. Everybody has ideas. Everybody has plans and need ammo for a specific trip or an event or a thing or whatever, or just the hobby of having the ability to shoot clays and trap and, um, go hunting. All of that is a necessity. But so you had mentioned a couple different things that were surprising to me. And it was um, that as much as shortage in supplies, there was a shortage in truck drivers. Yeah. So dealing with, so we get all of our hauls pre-primed from France. So okay. getting all of our, when it comes across on the water, it, some new regulations just changed where it has to get scanned and uh, it takes longer and truckers are highly efficient. So if you have something that takes twice as long to do one shipment, they're not going to do that shipment. So that's the newest 
issue that's sprung recently. Probably overly simplify it. They get paid by a route or a load or a delivery, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So if you can do, if it's going to be one, uh, if they can get two loads in, why would you not do that? Is essentially what it's boiling down to at this point. Yeah, hundred so. percent. I mean, it makes sense from from the outside looking at their perspective, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. oh, it makes yeah, makes perfect sense. Okay, so it's more a. There have been some shortages with materials, but that's to try and keep up with a higher demand than what has normally been. So that's something that people could not prepare for. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, people so if you look at it, can't. <laughs> yeah, it, from everything that I've seen, all the ammo manufacturers are saying they're up fifteen to twenty percent, fifteen to twenty-five percent year to date. So if you take that and multiply it. I mean, you're looking, some of these component guys are up over 100% on the year. There's, sure. You can't sustain, nobody can sustain anything like that. And the, the biggest thing that I didn't even think of till it happened, so everything stateside, guns and ammo, considered an essential business, everybody stayed up and kept working. Everything overseas, so our sister company, Gameboy, who makes all of our bismuth and lead shot, they are not considered an essential business, which I don't think a lot of people think about more often than not. So that's a whole nother, whole nother thing going on that helped just fuel the fire on this. So you said um, the holes come pre-primed from France. Mm-hmm. Is it, did I hear that right? Yep. Okay. So is it a... Is that something you guys outsource or is that an individual factory that's Kent owned there or... It's all outsourced. And then the manufacturing of the rounds themselves are done in? In Carnesville, West Virginia. Carnesville, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. About now, an hour north of D.C. An hour north of D.C.? Mm-hmm. Very cool. The oh, yeah. Game Boar, you said Game Boar is the sister company that makes mm-hmm. the business shot? Yes, sir. Interesting. Where are they based out of? Uh, U.K. So uh, in the UK, they're considered not, not, not an, essential an essential business. business. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, me specifically, I want to jump into this a little bit because a lot of people ask, um, I do a fair amount of upland hunting. And as an upland hunter, I primarily pheasant hunt, I would say with secondary to mixture of different things from sharp tail, prairie chickens, um, we do, I would love to go hunt hunts, but I have not had the opportunity. And then some combination of different quail subspecies. And for the most part, I shoot fast lead and through my 20 gauge, I like to, cause I, I, I mostly shoot 20 gauge. It's a smaller gun, just what I've gotten used to more comfortable with. And I think that that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest thing that I want to touch on with this specific statement. People ask all the time, and that's why I want to jump to this, is what do you shoot? Why do you shoot it? All of these, you know, specifics around the equipment, right? I shoot Beretta shotguns is what it is. I um, have shot other shotguns. Other shotguns exist. There are drastically higher dollar shotguns and drastically lower dollar shotguns. Beretta falls kind of in a category that fits and the gun fits me. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. the other side of it is I shoot 
three-inch sixes at pheasants because I like them to die. I <laughs> carry a little extra punch there. Is it necessary? Not not always in all situations, but it's going to it's going to leave less crippled gun, crippled birds out there and different things. And so when it comes down to, if you're asking what specifically do you use and why, the the question should be more of finding something that's comfortable to you because. I have a buddy that shoots and has pulled up to try and shoot my gun. It doesn't fit him the same. He's like, I don't like it, but Mm -hmm. he does like Benelli shotguns. And um, the way that they are set out of the box, you know, stock, whatever, not fitted or customized in any way, shape or form. When I mount that Benelli, I am looking right into the rear. Like I can't see over it. It's just Mm -hmm. how it works where, the way he mounts, he's looking perfectly, and he has the exact opposite problem when he tries to shoot a Beretta. So it's the guns are different. Find something that fits. Now, the fact that I am shooting a 20 gauge, it's what I'm comfortable with. I shoot those three inch sixes out of the Kent Fast Lead. When we are shooting places that we need non toxic shot of some form, I prefer more stopping power. So we shoot the Upland. Um, bismuth loads that you guys have mm-hmm. got and typically those we shoot number fives i don't know that you go as small as a six with the bismuth i think five is the you have to help me or with this one 20 gauge three inch we 20 gauge two and three quarter we two and have quarter. sixes okay. mm-hmm. um, but what we've been shooting is primarily fives because bismuth if, this is another thing so there's several different types of stuff and we're going to cover I want to cover that. I want to break it down for people because there are a lot of discrepancies in this. And I think you're going to have a lot of valuable information. But um, when you look at different shot that go into these individual shells, right? We've got lead, we have steel, we have bismuth, we have tungsten. Are there anything else that's being utilized right now than those? Or are those the four main? No, those are the four, four main ones that I would stick with. Okay. So, yeah. You hear, um, you hear of things like steel shot doesn't do as good a job as lead. And you hear about old timers talk about this too, right? Oh, back in the day, if you could shoot ducks with lead, you know, it'd be a totally different story. Well, I think yeah. the, the, the technology has changed drastically as far as in the individual shells themselves go and the guns and everything choke tubes down to just patterning better. But, mm-hmm. um, the main differences between these are going to be density and on the box, each Kent box, you actually have information about that. Yes, sir. And then the website is also chock full of information on it Okay, as well. So steel being the least dense, the least actual quote unquote stopping power. It is what it is, but it's non-toxic, right? Mm-hmm. Then you've got, bismuth that adds um it falls just below lead as far as density goes is that correct i want to say so it comes in the bismuth comes in at 9.6 density okay and i think let me look this up real quick i think lead's like just above that Uh, 11.29 grabs grams per cubic centimeter is that how that's figured yeah that is exactly it Okay, so 9 to 11, and then we've got um, tungsten comes in like at a, a whopping way above, is it almost 15? 
No, so our tungsten is not, it's not the TSS tungsten that okay. you'll get. I want to say our tungsten is about a 12. So okay. it's about the same. It's the most comparable to lead that you're going to get. Gotcha. So you've got essentially the, the similarities there. Now, what I've done a little jumping here. I talked about the specific things that I shoot. It's the 20 gauge. We're shooting three inch sixes in the fast lead. And that's, it patterns well through the shotgun. It does a good job at killing birds, which ultimately I don't want to cripple birds. We try and shoot things that we can harvest and um, crippling does no good. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in the non-toxic option, options, excuse me, I've shot bismuth and done well with that in Upland and the public properties that we have to do. Um, we have to be shooting non-toxic. And I mean, there's an argument from some folks to be able to say, going non-toxic is more the route that everyone should go. It's better for the environment and so on and so forth. Um, I personally don't buy into that hundred percent yet, but am happy to follow the rules where the rules say. And then I mm -hmm. um, actually had the opportunity and I talked to you a little bit about this, but to shoot tungsten at big geese this fall. Awesome experience. Uh, yes. It was, um, my wife and I both shot the tungsten, the specific rounds. They come in like a three inch number three. Is mm -hmm. that the, that is it. That's a big boys. Right. And okay. they beat them up. <laughs> and let me tell you, they did, you know, it's one of those that, um, on average, I would say that. Uh, 12 gauge carries more. And it's also the fact that they have bigger loads that those guns can handle, right? You've got mm -hmm. more room to work with. You've got more stopping power. Um, but being a big fan of a 20, I like to shoot that on a regular basis. We got to shoot those. Now, it's also expensive, okay? Um, there, There is no doubt about that. And when I had the box there, that was the biggest, we had the biggest crap from the, the blind of, how, how are you even shooting these? And I said, well, we do have, uh, you know, we do have a deal with Kent. We are on your team. We get ammo credit. And I thought, we'll try this as a box and see if it's truly worth it or not, or how it actually works out. And I'm, I'm going to say hands down, uh, it was insane. Cause we had tried in the past. I tried to shoot, um, the bismuth waterfowl loads, uh, which do well, but when it when you're shooting at big geese, and I'm talking not light geese, light geese are a whole different story. You can easily kill light geese with number fives out of those bismuth waterfowl loads, no problem. And at, at longer distances, even I mean, 20 gauge number fives bismuth will kill light geese all day long. There's no question about it. Um, just the same as cranes. That's what we shot at cranes were the number five bismuth which it was because there was the potential that we would be pulling some geese in as well. So um, there's a lot of different options out there. And I think that the biggest thing that people need to realize and think and be doing is finding something that they feel comfortable and confident with. And that brings me to my question for you, did a little talking, but what specifically are you, what are your go-tos? Business, hands down, um, all around. I mean, I shoot business fours, sun up to sundown, first day of the season, last day of the season. I'm not, 
the type of person that likes fumbling around. So we, when I'm not traveling, we hunt the mainly hunt the rivers in West Virginia. Probably don't recommend doing that. It's more of watching the sunrise and actually <laughs> hunting. <laughs> but it gets you out. You get to, I mean, our season ends late January. So it gets you late January, end of duck season, and then you start turkey season mid-April here. So it, it definitely helps ease the pain of season's ending. But business for three-inch fours, early season ducks to late season honkers, it just absolutely crushes them. Now, that being said, tungsten is a beast of a round. Got to use that, I think, one and say last time we used that we were duck hunting, sea duck hunting off the coast of Maryland. And oh, that was cool. a pretty awesome. Oh yeah. That was that was a ton of fun. Okay, sea duck hunting. Did you end up laying in one of those coffin blinds like out in the decoys? No, I was actually in the largest self he claims it's the largest duck sea duck boat. It's with uh, Jeff Coates or Pitfall's waterfowl on Pit Instagram. Waterfowl. He's got this okay. He's, it's like, I want to say it's a 35 foot, just good behemoth of a boat. And he, you take a string of ducks, tie an anchor to it. It's like 20, 30 feet long and they'll land right in it. It was, it's a crazy experience. Wish I may have gotten a little seasick, but, uh, on the second day, the first day was awesome. It was super cool. Water was like glass. And then the second day, very not cool. <laughs> Waves were, I mean, we were the, the, way it was rocking there were birds would land in the decoys and you wouldn't see it until you were on top of the next wave looking down into the decoys it was yeah it was not it was fun it would have been a blast if i wasn't green as can be but looking forward to doing it again that's for sure well i've got a buddy that keeps kind of hounded me to get up there and he's got some of those he's got a I don't know the specs on the boat, but he's got a boat that's rigged out for sea duck hunting. And he's got some of those Mm -hmm. little blinds that you basically, or yeah, blinds that you, I think they're called coffin blinds or something. You float out in the decoys. It's a little boat basically Mm -hmm. that you're at the, at the water and on water level with them. Yeah. Don't the birds fly lower. They stay close to the water. They're not. Mm hmm. Like feet above the water. Feet above the water. Instead of big groups coming in from up high. Yeah, and then they'll bank, they'll see it, and then just at the last second, bank and land. I mean, it is a real quick process. Cool. And Very cool. And they are a pain, a pain to knock down. I mean, they are the most toughest, most resilient little ducks in the world. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. It's nuts. Now, you said uh, duck hunting in West Virginia. What species are you specifically after there? It's this year was a little different. So, we had it got really, really cold towards the late end of the season, and we were getting tons of mallards, which we don't normally get a whole lot. Uh, black ducks, mergansers, there's another big thing, bufflehead. I mean, you can get kind of a mixed bag depending on the day. But it, we don't really get good until it starts all the ponds and streams start to freeze up on them. That's when it really starts to get good. We had a ton of geese come in too, which was a lot of fun at the late season. 
Rockies, uh, Canada's or big, big Canada's. Big Canada's. See, mm-hmm. when you can hear like them come down with a thud and it's almost dangerous for them to drop on top of you, it's kind of a cool, it's kind of a cool deal. Oh, yeah. It's super cool. So we hunt, we're probably about a mile, a uh, couple miles up from Harper's Ferry, if you've ever. If you've ever heard of that, it's like a big Civil War battlefield. Okay. So you have geese coming in over this ridge, and they're immediate. As soon as they hit the ridge, they're cupped up, and they're like two, three hundred yards floating right down into the decoys. It is a insane thing to watch. I mean, sun's hitting them in the face, and they're just dropping down into this river bottom, That's a couple awesome. hundred yards cupped up. It's super, super freaking cool when they do it. When That's do the it. biggest. Yeah, when and if they do it. I mean, that's, that's waterfowl hunt. Anyway, you, you look at it. Rarely have I mm-hmm. gone anywhere to waterfowl hunt and not seen a bunch of birds. Cause you sit near a roost or you sit near a feed field or in a feed field. And you typically are going to see the birds, whether they're going to cooperate for you or not. It's a totally different story. And that's why it's called hunting. If it was, <laughs> if you had success every time it'd be called killing and everybody would do it. Hey, but. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I want to circle back here. You mentioned this is the first year that you guys have been to Pheasant Fest. It'd be the first year that you've been mm-hmm. to the Northwest Turkey Federation's. Is it? Um, National Wildlife Turkey Foundation no, or uh, Federation. National NWTF. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, that's a good. That's a good show. That is a heck of a show. Where is that based out of? That one's in Nashville. In Nashville. Okay, so... the second week of February. You mentioned this to me a little bit, and I think it has something to do with it, but why uh, branching out into the new shows? Because I tell you, Kent has been primarily a waterfowl-based company for for quite a while, or at least that was kind of how things started. Mm -hmm. Yep, so we started with, in uh, 1990, so we're actually on our 25th anniversary year right now, so that's a kind of a feather in the cap for us but our, the first product that we started was tungsten matrix and then stayed in the waterfowl line with fast deal and it's kind of developed and opened up into more of a i mean we have a pretty broad assortment now but definitely trying to expand into the upland world as much as we can over the next couple of years i like it anything uh anything cool new big coming down the pipe that you can let us know about Oh, it's coming. There's we got a couple of things coming. It'll be a little bit uh, before you start to see stuff on it, but it's it's coming and it's going to be a it's a, it's a good time if you haven't been introduced to Kent yet. It is a good time to be to become a Kent fan. That's we could, I could put it that way. I like that. Um, yeah. My question for you, Hunter, where uh, where have you got planned to hunt first this year? I, as of right now, I think I'm going to be doing someplace on the East Coast. We're doing a long-tailed duck hunt. I don't know. We haven't got that packed down yet. And then probably back down in Texas in November for a crane hunt. Crane hunt. You have someone specific you're going with cranes? Um, I can't remember what we we went down with cable smith last year with lone star outdoor show with final descent guide services i wanted to say who we went with cool 
last year. Yeah, awesome little group based out uh, just outside of Lubbock. That's a, a big area for cranes. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, we I, I've never done it. And the craziest thing about the hardest thing that I had to deal with with cranes that nobody thinks about in Lubbock, there's where West Texas as a whole, there is nothing. You can I mean it is no trees, nothing to no. bounce the sound off of. So you literally just sit next to one of the irrigation stations, take some tumbleweeds, pile it up on layup lines, stick 15, 20 decoys out in front of you, and these things just dump in. And it is, you want to talk about just getting, they get stuck. And when you get up out of that blind, it's like, I mean, if you miss, you have a problem with your gun. There is, I mean, we were using, I was using two and three quarter lead like fours or fives with them this year and it was just obliterating them but we were they were 15 20 yards cuffed up couldn't i mean the major they were just stuck we were done hunting by 7 30 every morning if that very unique experience for sure so we went um it was you're from you know brian lasley dt systems um mm-hmm. yeah and have you have you ever met Ron Spomer? You know I Ron Spomer? Okay, so Ron's an out, mm-hmm. outdoor rider, and I got the opportunity to go on a hunt with the two of them, and it was uh, it was a really neat experience. We were right outside Lubbock, so exactly what you're talking about. And the first morning, we saw quite a few birds, and the ones that not all of them worked, but the birds that did, did well. And we mm-hmm. each shot, I think the, I'd have to look specifically, but I think you can shoot three a person. That sound yep. right? Um, and you so said, bit, all in all, it's pretty quick. Yes. Yes. And we ended up shooting, it was a couple small groups. It was two, and we shot two birds a person that first morning. And then the next morning was absolutely ridiculous. And I put together a video from that, that I, of some footage. It's on our YouTube channel. Um, that, I'm horrible at that estimating game. You know, like people talk about, oh, there were 10,000 or there are 40,000 or there are however many. And it's just, it sounds like an unfathomable number to try and count or estimate or whatever. But I mean, it was almost deafening loud. The, oh, yeah. Them all taken off. And that's when the most noise happens, right? You could hear them and it was pretty noisy. Mm-hmm. But when they all decided they were going to get up and go, we sit, we sat and watched cranes that didn't really work. I mean, some of them were just taking off and going, right? But we sat and watched cranes work for an hour. And it was just, and they were still coming up off the ground. It was just cranes and cranes and cranes. And then once that kind of settled, and some came over and gave us a look, but never really came in um, inside of like a 70-yard window. So it's right on that edge where you shouldn't be shooting, right? Probably borderline. Mm-hmm. Unless you're Brian Lasley, that dude's, uh, it's like he's got a sniper attached in the front of that shotgun. But, <laughs> um, and, but we watched cranes after crane, after crane, after crane group just come in and go. And it was, it was insane. As soon as the, the maths, the majority of them were gone, um, then the last few groups worked really, really easy. And it's exactly what you said. I mean, it was like, and the birds that I shot specifically, it was three cane, cranes came in, 
and they were all just committed and they were right out front and it went boom, boom, boom. And I shot three off of, out of the one group of three. It was, um, they don't take a ton as big of a bird as they are. Um, there's a lot of leg, a lot of wing and not a whole lot of else there. Now the meat that is there. delicious have you eaten it that stuff oh man it is so freaking good it oh. okay now if you if you oh, if you don't want it send it up to me okay. i will gladly eat it <laughs> i oh. i tried it a few different ways and i'm going to tell you first off everybody that's listening has heard ribeye of the sky right um i would assume most people haven't and if you haven't just search it real quick and you're going to find out that a picture of a crane is going to pop up. And these cranes that we're talking about are sand hill cranes. Um, there are other cranes that are protected like whooping cranes and heck, I can't even listen to the other cranes, but I know whooping cranes specifically. Use. Yeah. They show up in yeah, but like, South that's Texas what causes them. Yeah. For Texas, there's like areas where whooping cranes are like known to be. So you can't hunt yeah. sand hills there. Yeah. Um, but the ribeye of the sky. Now, uh, the biggest thing that I think for me was I personally am not a huge fan of waterfowl. It's not my, it's not my favorite thing as far as eating goes, um, ducks, geese. Now I've had it prepared properly and whatever. It's delicious. And I'm not talking about wrapped in bacon and you know, whatever that's, that's a go-to way to cook wild game. And I don't think it's bad because I think bacon's delicious. And anybody that says bacon's not delicious is, is not American, okay? But uh, <laughs> it's it's not the only way to prepare food. And I don't think it's a requirement to, you say, like, if I can wrap it in bacon and eat it, that it means it's good. Um, we had had some teal. There's a group of guys that I guide in South Dakota, and they're just like a collection of either wannabe or actually professional cookers, chefs, some form of it's the one guy does like some barbecue stuff and everything is smoked or grilled and it's amazing. And then another guy's down from South Texas area and his buddy has got a, a Cajun restaurant. I don't want to say chain because he's got like a couple. It's not really a chain, but he owns a few different restaurants or manages them. So um, he had brought some food that that guy had prepared and had learned some things as far as how to make good food and whatever else. So it's always delicious, but they prepared um, teal and it was just grilled, but I believe it was skin on and mm-hmm. they just grilled this teal and it was, it was delicious. I mean, it was completely different. And I, I think that a lot of it comes down to preparation. Now, um, with the ribeye of the sky, this is kind of my caveat to people saying, um, if you're, you're categorizing things from the sky and this is the ribeye, which would be known as like the best cut of beef or one of the best, I guess, filet can argumentatively be better than that, but it's top of the line, right? You've got a ribeye. Um, so in my eyes, waterfowl or from the sky is the worst. And this is the best of the worst. Um, <laughs> That's a funny way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. So um, when we had 
when we had the sandhill cranes, we prepared it a few different ways. I just grilled it. That was good. Saw, you know, like season it like a steak, grilled it. It was mm-hmm. cooked right. Yep. It was good. Um, it does not taste the same as waterfowl does. I think that no. waterfowl typically for me is really, you know, almost metallic. It's got a really strong blood flavor. Real gamey. Yep. Yeah, gamey. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, and I'm going to lose it. If I come, if it comes to me, it's what that specific, what the thing is that gives that flavor is, um, shoot. Can't think of exactly what it's called, but it's water soluble. And that's the thing that I think that a lot of people make a mistake with is not properly prepping what they're cooking. And that -hmm. involves some form of soaking to get as much of the blood out of the meat because the blood is not overly tasty. Once you get rid of that, Mm -hmm. um, the meat itself is drastically better. And that would involve some level of pounding it out or breaking it down and then soaking it. Um, Do you have a specific way that you like to prepare? Are you, I mean, is it, you got any secrets for us? Um, I guess if you're, so I'm, currently in the process of marrying a city girl. So she did not grow up around any of the hunting community whatsoever. And it's been hilarious to do it. And she's been a trooper with it. I mean, she's killed huge turkeys, deer. I mean, I don't think she shot a deer outside inside of like 300 yards. Like she's a, she's a trooper in that aspect of it. So introducing her into the cooking side of things has been interesting and i've found what works for her is i'll soak it in salt water Mm -hmm. for a little bit to help draw all the blood out and then to get rid of the gaminess i'll put it in uh, buttermilk okay for a day in the fridge and that has seemed to work um, a little bit i did that with the cranes and i had i made it for one of my buddies and i had to actually show him the packaging that the crane came in because he was convinced it was a steak. He <laughs> did not believe that it was a bird. So he, he was over the moon with it, but it's, I mean, I do all kinds of stuff uh, like Turkey drumsticks is another thing that everybody stays away from. Can of Sprite, two scoops of sweet baby rays and throw it in a crock pot for 10 hours. You will not be disappointed. I like it. Yeah, that's an interesting one I found a couple of years ago that I I am in love with. So, on average, I think that the what you explained is a is a big part of making things better, which is you soak it in salt water. Now, the salt aspect of things, salt's a tenderizer, right? So, you've mm-hmm. got water and salt, and it's helping to break down a little bit the fibers of the meat, as well as like we were talking about rinsing blood and keeping getting things cleaned up as much as possible and then i believe um, milk being lactic acid again helps break things down um Mm -hmm. and then cooking it to the proper temperature which low and slow is a good way to prevent things from getting overly tough and then um the the last part of that being just not overcooking it which i think is a big mistake that people Uh, a big mistake that people make right it's um, it's really easy to do because it's 
wild game in general is very, very lean. There's really small amount of fat there. Very. And, and another thing that I've come to realize is everybody wants to cook wild game longer because they feel like it's dirtier or needs to be cooked more thoroughly. Safer. Which is not the I right. yeah, I'm the complete opposite with it. So it I, it's like what, two to three minutes each side, get it to I can't remember what temperature I try to get it to, but once it's there I pull it off, let it sit for a minute, cut it up and it's on a plate. There's no I don't I never have been accused of overcooking anything. I can put it that way. <laughs> So you've got a crane hunt and a duck hunt planned. Um, it's turkey season right now. Is this something that you typically partake in or not really? Oh, yeah. Turkey hunting. I grew up. So waterfowl hunting is still new. It's very, very new to me, and I'm starting to get into that. And honestly, have a pretty hilarious resume with the amount of stuff that I've been able to do in the four years here. But turkey hunting. We have, so the factory has 300 acres that surrounds it, and it is chock full of deer, turkeys, depending on what crops are in. We'll get ducks, geese landing in the cornfield, doves everywhere. So about 45 minutes before we started the podcast, I had my shotgun over my shoulder walking around the property trying to strike up a tom in the middle of the day. So it is, it's a very very cool place to be able to do so i don't have to i mean tomorrow morning gonna be a beautiful cool morning so I'll probably be out here before work trying to strike one up and get it done before everybody gets into the office i like it the uh turkeys in general are kind of a a strange a strange thing based off individual states and um how like i think alabama you can shoot like five turkeys or something like that Mm-hmm. Um, Kansas, different areas you can shoot two, and a lot of the areas have moved to only allowing one because the numbers have declined a little bit in the state of Kansas. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Um, lots of people have lots of opinions on why numbers are declining all the way around. And I think that there's a multiple, there's multiple factors to that, right? It's not just one thing. It's not just the weather or just the farming or just the chemicals or just the predators or you know, it's a, all of those things combine into creating a change in the environment that they thrived in. So, yeah, but, um, I, I'm a, yeah, go ahead. The, so the super interesting thing that I've kind of taken a look at running all the social media stuff, I see a tremendous amount of content on the day-to-day basis. Just looking at, so when, and tying it in the COVID, you had, for the first time in however many, what seems like decades, you were getting the media to push everybody to go outside, go to national parks. And you saw it immediately with the amount of hunting and outdoor activities that immediately started to take over. It's, I'm going to be interested to see what the turkey numbers are three to four years down the line that come out for this time block to see how many more people, how many more turkeys were harvested, how many more people bought licenses and where they were at. I mean, it seems like as soon as you get on, if you get on YouTube and type in turkey hunting, you'll get the first 150 videos pop up or somebody's turkey tour that they're doing, traveling to three or four different states, shooting a couple birds in each state. And it's, it's interesting. I definitely think people need to start paying attention to those numbers and realizing that it's not 
somebody just doing it to keep people from having fun, I guess. Like if the numbers, if they were to, if the West Virginia DNR were to knock on my door and say, you're only allowed to shoot one turkey next year, I wouldn't question it at all. And I can walk out the front door of the office in the morning and I can hear 20 or 30 of them gobble. And that's, I think people just get so laser focused on, hey, I got birds right here that I can go after and they don't think about the state as a whole per se. Yeah, it's a it's a very valid point. It it becomes, um, you know, I have firsthand experience with that with pheasants specifically. The property that we have access to up there, it's managed and maintained well, and we have consistently done better than what the state average is. Right. So, but the state mm-hmm. and granted they haven't changed. They did make a change in um, harvest numbers, but for the most part, it's still three roosters and. Um, there's no talk of changing that lowering or, or increasing or anything like that, but it's, it is based off of, you know, state averages, which can be area dependent, can be habitat dependent, can be you know, a large number of different things. So, yeah. um, I found this and this is kind of like a fun fact. Um, the red part of the, the meat which if you look at red meat, it's red. But if you look at like uh, wild ducks and, and waterfowl in general, it's darker red and deeper red than what beef would be or other red meats would be. Um, it's actually myoglobin. Have you heard that term or do you know what that is? I have no. I'm going to get on the Google machine right uh-huh, now. I'm going to read it to much. you. It's the protein found in muscle tissue of mammals that attaches to oxygen. So the reason that waterfowl are extremely high in myoglobin is because they fly in higher altitudes where there's less oxygen. So they need, they need additional oxygen stored in their body essentially for the longer flights at, at higher altitudes. And that is where a majority of the um, stronger flavors come from, which is why it thinks it's all in that you get that kind of almost like metallic-y flavor or whatever it is, blood, um, my, which is what we say, blood, right? It's, blood, well, it's myoglobin. And myoglobin is water-soluble. So that means you can soak it and it goes away. Well, the soaking only penetrates so deep into the meat. So if you cut thinner strips in your meat, you can soak more of it, reduce more myoglobin, and then ultimately provide a better tasting meat all the way around. Now, you can't magically soak a duck breast and turn it into beef. They're totally different creatures, but you can, you can take away the parts that are less. Uh, you can take away some of that gamey flavor or some of what's there to be able to utilize what you are har- hunting and harvesting. Right. So myoglobin fun fact of the day, uh, protein, that binds to oxygen, it becomes red. So inside the bird, it's not even red, maybe. I don't know. I think that it is. But, all right, Hunter. So this is the the big things that we have rolling this year, and we've talked a little bit about, is we're going to try and do a, um, a upland adventure, similar to what you're talking about, traveling to multiple states, and hope to be planning this the middle to end of September to beginning part of October. Um, we're heading north and west, chasing sharp tails, potentially prairie chickens if we're in South Dakota where they're both at, uh, maybe a little bit Nebraska. 
we usually would drive straight past there because I don't have as much uh, access to ground and information in that area. But then, um, have you ever been up to North Dakota um, to hunt upland game at all? I have not at all. No, oh. anywhere at that north, what north central part of the country. It's a big gray area for me. Gotcha. We, we're going to try and go up there. That's a decent area. That southwest corner of the state is a decent area for Hungarian partridge, gray partridge, huns, oh, wow. um, all the different uh, loving, hating names. I think that partridge in general kind of have a love-hate relationship with the average hunter. Uh, Chucker often referred to as devil birds and things like that. It's uh, – <laughs> You have you not heard this? Oh my god! Uh, and it's it's all it's all based around the amount of work that goes into hunting them. Typically, there's some elevation change involved, and usually you chase them up and down hills, and it becomes quite a workout. Um, I think Huns are a little oh, more yeah. prairie based, but what uh, what are the potentials here for us going forward in the future to be able to try and do some upland hunting together? Oh, 100%. Let me know when and where, and I will make it happen. We'll make it happen. Uh, you got time this year yet, or are you, uh, you booked up for 22? I'm, I could be pretty open. The only thing with towards the, you said, the end of September? End of September, beginning part of October. So the only kicker there is we have a bunch of local shows to do and i believe my sister's getting married sometime in there so i'll have to check in with her but to be honest i could miss i think she would understand me missing her wedding so (laughs) i'll get back to you on that (laughs) i'm gonna go with i bet she won't understand but maybe you probably know your sister Uh, better than me no i could talk her into it my mom i could not talk into i understand that 100 percent any big things that you can share with us going forward that we can be uh, looking for? I know you kind of hinted at the fact that there is, uh, it's a good time to be uh, jumping on board with Kent because of the stuff coming up. Anything this year that's uh, already, already okay to release? Are we same old plant trying to play, get ahead a little bit? It'll be more, on the production side, it'll be more the same. We aren't going to have anything fun and new to play with for at least this year. The, but what I can say is starting in July, I think it's the first week, starting on July 7th, we're going to be doing, start paying attention to the in social media because we are going to have a ton of fun celebrating the 25th anniversary of Kent. We're going to have a ton of stuff coming out the first week of July, running it. For the 25 weeks all the way to New Year's Eve. Well, talk so to us about that be, a little bit. What have you got a, to share? So we we have a great system set up now with all of our pro staffers, content development guys. So we're going to be running giveaways, big giveaways varying on region and preference. So it'll be... I don't know how much I want to give away on it. Teasing it is going to be just as fun at this point. Um, It'll be big giveaways, uh, 25 big giveaways. 
for 25 straight straight weeks running it off of uh, pro staff and content guys pages so we'll be able to really have a big showing and support for the people that keep the doors open here and we're really looking forward it's been a while since we've done a lot of well really any giveaway on the social media type of stuff so being able to do it 25 weeks in a row is going to be an absolute blast well that's awesome um folks i think you've heard it we've got uh, a lot to look forward to there starting in july it's uh something i would expect that you'd be able to see through our social page as well but if you don't already where uh can people find kent what's the best place to be looking for for on socials in store well really any i guess where the product is is a good place to start so we can be found in any major online retailer big box stores, and then we have an awesome dealer locator on the website that would get you fine-tuned for all of the mom-and-pop stores closest to uh, that area. Runs, I think it runs off the zip code, so you'll be able to push it as far out as you want to go based upon the radius that you have. Man, that's perfect. Hunter, I really appreciate your time today. I hope you all enjoyed the, the little chat that we had. Um, as always, moving forward, definitely reach out to us if you've got questions. You can find uh, Kat and I at Standing Stone Kennels on any social platform. And we have our dog training community set up on Patreon, patreon.com slash Standing Stone Kennels. As we move forward with things, we look forward to y'all um, tuning back in next week. I'm the guy with the pink gun. Thanks, Hunter, for being on with us today. Um, and we'll see y'all in the next video. Thank <laughs> you.